This is Space Time, Series 20, Episode 89, for broadcast on the 17th of November, 2017. Coming up on Space Time, the monster planet discovery rewriting the textbooks, a possible ancient ocean on the dwarf planet Ceres, and new clues about the origins of life on planet Earth. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered a large Jupiter-sized planet orbiting around a small red dwarf star. It's the first time such a large planet has been seen orbiting such a low-mass host star. The discovery, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society and on the pre-press physics website archive.org, will force a rethink of existing planetary formation hypotheses. The planet, named NGTS-1b, is a gas giant, with about 80% the mass of Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. The planet is orbiting a spectral type M red dwarf star of about half the mass and diameter of the Sun. The system is located some 600 light years away in the constellation Columbia, just south of Canis Major and Lepus. The newly discovered planets are hot Jupiter, with a surface temperature of around 530 degrees Celsius, orbiting its host star in just 2.65 days. The new exoplanet was discovered using the Next Generation Transit Survey a wide-field observing facility comprising a compact ensemble of telescopes designed to search for planets transiting or passing in front of bright stars. The researchers made their discovery by monitoring patches of the night sky over many months and detecting red light from the star with innovative red-sensitive cameras. They noticed dips in the light coming from the star every 2.6 days, implying that a planet was orbiting and periodically blocking starlight. Using these data, they then traced the planet's orbit around the star and calculated the size, position and mass of the planet by measuring the radial velocity of the star, finding how much the star wobbles during orbit due to the gravitational tug from the planet, which changes depending on the planet's size. The study's lead author, Dr Daniel Bayless from the University of Warwick, says the planet's existence challenges current theories on planetary formation, which state that a planet of this size couldn't be formed around such a small star. According to these hypotheses, small stars can readily form terrestrial rocky planets, but don't gather enough material together to form large Jupiter-sized worlds. The challenge now is to find out how common these types of systems really are. The study's co-author, Professor Peter Wheatley, also from the University of Warwick, says NGTS-1b was difficult to find despite being a monster planet because its host star was so small and faint. Spectral type M red dwarfs are the most common types of stars in the universe, and that leads to the possibility that there could be more of these planets just waiting to be found. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Scientists have detected widespread reserves of mineral-containing water on the dwarf planet Ceres. The discovery by NASA's Dawn spacecraft suggests that the 945-kilometre-wide world may once have had a global ocean and may still have liquid water today. Dawn scientists found that Ceres' crust is a mixture of ice, salts and hydrated minerals that was subjected to past and possibly recent geologic activity. Researchers say this crust represents most of that ancient ocean. 
Scientists also suggest that there's a softer, more malleable layer beneath Ceres' rigid surface crust, and this could be the signature of residual liquid water left over from the ocean. Put together, the findings add to a growing picture of Ceres as a complex, dynamic world, one that may have hosted a lot of liquid water in the past and may still have some underground water reserves today. Landing on Ceres to investigate its interior would be both technically challenging and would also risk contaminating the dwarf planet. So instead, scientists use Dawn's observations in orbit to measure Ceres' gravity in order to estimate its composition and internal structure. Anton Ermakov from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, used the shape and gravity data measurements from Dawn to measure the internal structure and composition of Ceres. These measurements came from observing the spacecraft's movements using NASA's Deep Space Network to track small changes in Dawn's orbit. The findings, published in the Journal of Geophysical Research, supports the possibility that Ceres is geologically active, if not now, then certainly in the recent past. Three craters, Okatar, Kerwin and Yellowed, as well as Ceres' solitary pyramid-like mountain Unamons, are all associated with gravitational anomalies. This means discrepancies between scientists' models of Ceres' gravity and what Dawn's actually observed at these four locations can be associated with subsurface structures. Ermakov says Ceres appears to have an abundance of gravity anomalies associated with outstanding geological features. In the case of Unamons and Okatar, the anomalies can be used to better understand the origin of these features, which are believed to be different expressions of cryovolcanism. The study found the crust density to be relatively low, closer to that of ice than rocks. However, a study by Michael Bland from the US Geological Survey indicates the ice on Ceres is too soft to be a dominant component of the dwarf planet's crust. To determine how Ceres' crust is as light as ice in terms of density, but still simultaneously much stronger, scientists modelled how Ceres' surface would have evolved over time. The study, led by Roger Fu from Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, investigated the strength and composition of Ceres' crust in the deeper interior by studying the dwarf planet's topography. By looking at how topography evolves over time on a planetary body, scientists can begin to understand the composition of its interior. A strong rock-dominated crust can remain unchanged over the 4.6 billion year history of the solar system, while a weak crust rich in ices and salts would deform significantly over that time. The findings, reported in the journal Earth and Planetary Science Letters, found that Ceres' crust is likely to be a mixture of ice, salts, rock and an additional component believed to be clathrate hydrate. A clathrate hydrate is a cage of water molecules surrounding a gas molecule. It's a structure which is 100 to 1,000 times stronger than water ice, despite having about the same density. Scientists believe Ceres once had much more pronounced surface features, but over time, they've all been smoothed out. This type of flattening of mountains and valleys requires a high-strength crust resting on a more malleable layer, which Fu and colleagues interpret as containing at least some liquid. The team thinks most of Ceres' ancient ocean is now frozen and bound up in the crust, remaining in the form of ice, clathrate hydrates and salts, and they think it's most likely been that way for at least 4 billion years. At the same time, they say if there is residual liquid underneath, that ocean may not yet be entirely frozen. That's consistent with several thermal evolution models of Ceres published prior to Dawn's arrival, which support the idea that Ceres' deeper interior could contain liquid left over from an ancient ocean. Dawn's flight to the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter is the only mission to ever orbit two extraterrestrial worlds. It first orbited the giant asteroid Vesta for 14 months in 2011 and 2012, and then continued on to Ceres, where it achieved orbit insertion in March 2015. 
Vesta and Ceres are interesting main belt asteroid targets because they're separated by the snow line. The distance from the Sun where it's cold enough for volatile compounds such as water, ammonia, methane, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide to condense into solid ice grains. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. Geologists have begun an intense core drilling campaign at Rocher in central France to study an astroblim. Astroblims are geological scars caused by the impact of celestial bodies on a planet's surface, things like impact craters. The Rocher astroblim is thought to be the remains of a 20 to 30 kilometre wide, 207 million year old impact crater. The astroblim's been the subject of debate among geologists ever since its discovery in the early 19th century. However, it wasn't until 1969 that scientists were able to confirm it was an asteroid impact site. That confirmation was made possible by studying the effects of the impactor on the surrounding geology without any circular topographic features being visible, the first time such a method was used. Although scientists have known about the site for well over 100 years, this is the first detailed scientific drilling program undertaken on the feature. Some scientists now suspect that Rocher may be part of a multiple impact event, which also formed impact craters in Quebec, Manitoba, the Ukraine and North Dakota. They claim all the impacts occurred around the same time, and their paleo-alignment is consistent with the breakup of a single asteroid into several impactors. Scientists estimate the Rocher impactor would have weighed well over 6 billion tonnes. It would have been over a kilometre wide and would have hit the Earth at over 72,000 kilometres an hour. The impact which vaporised the asteroid would have exploded with the energy of several thousand Hiroshima-sized nuclear bombs, in the process destroying all life within a 200-kilometre radius. The month-long drilling campaigns expected to yield at least 20 core samples, the job being made easier by the shallow depth of the target rock. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley speaking with Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. We're going to look at um, something that, uh, well, if, if you say the word, people are going to go, huh? And the word is astroblem, or astrobleem as it is written, but we think it's a blem. Um, this has got something to do with some core drilling that's been going on, and they've been digging up rocks and looking at them, and uh, they have found one of these things, I assume. Indeed, that's right. So the word itself, you get the clue from other words. Astroblem or astrobleem, as it looks to us. I think you pronounce it as, as you like, really. Mm. Depends where, which school you went to, probably. Um, it means literally, well, astro is to do with stars, so star. And a blem is a scar. It's, a, it's like a blemish. That's where the word blemish comes from. So an astroblem is a star scar. And it, it actually basically just means whatever's left by something that's hit the Earth. And we're now talking about once again, asteroids or meteorites. So if you've got an asteroid that comes in, hits the Earth and alters its geology, then the resulting geological features are called astroblems. Ah. So that's what this is. It's all pretty boring, um, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it, when it comes to the crunch, most things are, Andrew. No, that's not true. No, we, well, not there's nobody could say that what we do is boring. Um, well, they could, but... <laughs> I, do, I do remember one of... Um, 
the first book I wrote, one of the reviews said, this is as exciting as watching paint dry. Oh, is that where that phrase came from? Oh, dear. <laughs> is, yeah. So I thought, well, okay, never mind. Um, uh, but I don't think I don't think that's all right. Generally, it's particularly boring. I, I read a review about my book recently and they said, gee, should have got a, a better proofreader. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's that's a fair criticism. Yeah, it is. yeah. I'll <laughs> no, it's that. all right. No, it's not. So, an astroblem covers everything from you know just a small dip in the ground to something the size of the Ixalum crater, which is where the 12-kilometer or 15-kilometer diameter asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs hit in the Gulf of Mexico. That you could call an astroblem, but we usually would call it a crater. Mm. But uh, the astroblem that's causing attention at the moment is a rather special one. It's in France. It's in a place called Rochechouart, or Rochechouart is probably the way the locals pronounce it, which is in central France. It's a little town that has basically this unusual rock feature, and which we now know is basically caused by the impact of an asteroid, a small asteroid, big enough to do damage. But it's very old. It's much, much older than the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. That, if you remember, was 66 million years ago. This one's more than 200 million years ago. And actually, it's been known for well over 100 years, probably more like 150 years, to have a sort of extraterrestrial origin, or at least to be something special. Yeah. I think it's probably more recently than that. And so it's been a magnet for scientists, geologists, exobiologists, astrobiologists, the people who look at signs of life from space, paleontologists, people who look at fossils and things. And basically, they've come to this place because the remnants, the geological evidence is very close to the surface. That's mm. why it's so special. It's uh, basically... You know, you don't have to dig to the bottom of the Gulf of, the ground. Me- of right. Mexico, for example. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I think they only went down about fourteen hundred meters, but it's still a long way. Yeah. Uh, when they when the Myrtle uh, um, dr- drilling rig drilled into the Gulf of Mexico, but with this one in Rochua, you don't need to. You just kind of <laughs> hit hit the rock kick with the a hammer dirt off and you the top. The- yeah. Yeah, that's right. So they've so, been doing some core drilling. That's uh, indeed on, the on case this, on this outcrop. Did they find anything? Well, I think that's what the story really leads to. They clearly have been drilling. We've got some nice photographs of core samples and things of that sort. But what's happening now is that that is all being analysed. So, for example, you've got people there, um, basically meteoritic specialists, who are trying to get the details of... And these are chemical details, largely, you know, from the analysis of the rock, of how meteorites like this form and uh, how they evolve in space. Because we think that... Asteroids in particular are really the leftover debris of the formation of the solar system. Mm. So there's all all that sort of thing. And then there are people looking, the astrobiologists are looking for evidence of there being sort of organic materials that have come in on this space rock because some people think that the organic materials, these are the carbon-containing compounds, some of them quite complex, actually seeded life on Earth. If you've got these complex molecules that are prerequisites for life and they're dumped on Earth by asteroids, well, that might be what kicked off life here. We don't know the answer to that, but this is the kind of work that scientists are doing. And there's, you know, there's all sorts of other scientific work going on, like how much of the life in the surrounding area was destroyed by 
this impact because it, it probably damaged the environment for well more than 100 kilometers all around probably more like two or 300 kilometers this, this is a one kilometer sized object which is a big one it's big enough to do at least nationwide damage and probably continent-wide damage as well wow, so amazing. an interesting story and it, what's exciting about it is as i said it's this thing's right on the surface so people are talking about setting up open air laboratories above it and things of that sort it's great stuff yeah indeed and so there'll be more to learn and we may be able to talk about that down the track so i think so yeah and i think it's almost a, a sort of public service that they're doing here because they're drilling the rock cores and then they're making available to scientists everywhere rather than keeping it all to themselves and doing the analysis they're basically putting them out to research groups all around the world so we might it's going to be probably a couple of years but we might get some really interesting results from this that's professor fred watson from the australian astronomical observatory speaking with andrew dunkley on our sister program space nuts and this is space time I'm Stuart Gary. If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash spacetimewithstuartgary. Scientists with the Scripps Research Institute have found a compound that may have been a crucial factor in the origins of life on Earth. The origins of life researchers have hypothesized that a chemical reaction called phosphorylation may have been crucial for the assembly of three key ingredients in early life forms. Short strands of nucleotides to store genetic information, short chains of amino acids such as peptides to do the main work of cells, and lipids to form encapsulating structures such as cell walls. Yet no one's ever found a phosphorylating agent that was likely to be present on the early Earth and could have produced these three classes of molecules side by side under the same realistic conditions. Scientists have now found just such a compound, dimetaphosphate, or DAP. The findings, reported in the journal Nature Chemistry, are part of ongoing efforts to find plausible routes from the epic journey of pre-biological chemistry to cell-based biochemistry. Mind you, other teams have described chemical reactions that might have enabled phosphorylation of pre-biological molecules on the early Earth. But these scenarios have all involved different phosphorylating agents for different types of molecules, as well as different and often uncommon reaction environments. It's been hard to imagine how these very different processes could have combined in the same place to yield the first primitive life forms. The authors of the new study found that DAP could phosphorylate each of the four nucleotide building blocks of RNA in water or a paste-like state under a wide range of temperatures and other conditions. With the addition of the catalyst dimidazole, a simple organic compound that itself was plausibly present on early Earth, DAP's activity could have also led to the appearance of short RNA-like chains of these phosphorylated building blocks. Moreover, DAP with water anamidazole efficiently phosphorylated the lipid building blocks glycerol and fatty acids, leading to the self-assembly of small phospholipid capsules called vesicles, primitive versions of cells. DAP in water at room temperature also phosphorylated the amino acids glycerin, asparic acid and glutamic acid, and then helped link these molecules into short peptide chains, peptides being smaller versions of proteins. So, with DAP in water in these mild conditions, 
you get these three important classes of prebiological molecules to come together and be transformed, creating the opportunity for them to interact together. Put simply, the work suggests DAP could well have had a much more central role in the very origins of life. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. The Cygnus cargo ship successfully launched aboard an Antares rocket bound for the International Space Station. The Cygnus OA-8 blasted off from Orbital's Wallops Island launch pad on the Virginian mid-Atlantic coast. The launch had been delayed by a day after an aircraft flew into the restricted zone and was delayed again after two boats were detected in the downrange hazard zone. The Cygnus supply ship was named the SS Gene Cernan in honour of the American astronaut who passed away earlier this year. Standing by for engine ignition sequencing. T-minus 10 seconds and mark. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And we have ignition. Liftoff confirmed, Antares and the SS Gene Cernan now bound for the International Space Station. Arcing out to the southeast, approaching the one minute mark into flight. Terry's now um, passing through the ma- area of r- maximum dynamic pressure on the vehicle. Everything looking great. One minute, 35 seconds into the flight. Less than two minutes to go uh, in first stage performance. Real-time telemetry from orbital ATK, two minutes, 20 seconds into the flight. GNC attitude is nominal. Core pressures are nominal. Roughly uh, one minute for main engine cutoff. T plus 230. Power systems still look good. Engine's still at full power. We've started the uh, slow throttle ramp to uh, maintain axial acceleration limits. Approaching the uh, three-minute mark into the flight, about 30 seconds of uh, powered flight on the first stage remaining. We've now throttled back to 55% power, roughly 30 seconds from MECO. Power systems are good. TVC position adjusted for shutdown. Attitude remains nominal. Three minutes, 20 seconds into the flight, standing by for main engine cutoff on the first stage. Main engines still look good. Attitude is nominal. And we have MECO, main engine cutoff on stage one. PSS is disabled. We have stage one separation. Stage one separation coming uh, with Antares at an altitude of 67 miles, velocity of almost 9,000 miles an hour. Getting some telemetry dropouts. 
about 10 seconds away from fairing separation. Coming up on the five-minute mark uh, into the flight, everything continues uh, to proceed normally. The upper stage of the Cygnus uh, of the Antares rocket uh, has ignited. Stage two uh, burnout and orbital insertion, uh, the initial orbital insertion, scheduled at the seven-minute, six-second mark into the flight. Two minutes later, Cygnus will separate from the upper stage. Everything looking right down the pike as uh, Antares uh, is delivering uh, the Cygnus resupply craft and 7,400 pounds of uh, supplies and science experiments beginning a two-day journey to the International Space Station. Liftoff occurring at the end of the five-minute window today at 7, 19, and 51 seconds a.m. Eastern Time. Everything, all the parameters and the attitude of the upper stage uh, all in line, everything looking great at the six-minute mark. About 60 seconds to go uh, in the operation of the second stage of the the Antares rocket. Good stage two attitude reported uh, from the range control center at Wallops. The uh, upper stage roll control system performing as advertised at the six minute 45 second mark into the flight. About 10 seconds until stage two burnout. And uh, the upper stage now has uh, completed its job for the day. Cygnus uh, now at an altitude of 121 miles, moving almost 17,000 miles an hour in its uh, preliminary orbit. Spacecraft separation is scheduled about a minute and a half from now. Eight uh, minutes into the flight, everything looking great. We're in a coast phase right now. Spacecraft separation is scheduled less than a minute from now. Eight minutes, 30 seconds into the flight. A true course so far for the Cygnus uh, resupply craft. Orbital ATK delivering a perfect launch so far. Liftoff time once again came at the end of the five-minute window at 7, 19, and 51 seconds a.m. Eastern time. We're standing by for spacecraft separation. Spacecraft separation now confirmed. The uh, Antares upper stage uh, is in a collision avoidance maneuver to uh, make sure that it is well away from Cygnus. Cygnus now, the SS Gene Cernan, in its preliminary orbit, beginning a two-day trek to the International Space Station after a flawless launch from Pad 0A at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport at Wallops Island, Virginia. Cygnus cargo ships comprise two sections. There's the orbital-built service module housing the spacecraft's auxiliary systems, including power-generating solar arrays, and its propulsion systems, comprising an aerospace BT-4 rocket engine. And there's the Thales Alenia Spaceport PCM, or pressurised cargo module, which, as the name suggests, holds the cargo. The PCMs are based on the design of the former space shuttle multi-purpose logistics modules. For this mission, the Cygnus is carrying some 3,338 kilograms of food, technical equipment, scientific experiments and other supplies. Also included in the manifest are several small research satellites. These include an experimental 10.4 kilogram 6-unit CubeSat platform for NASA and Stanford University's School of Medicine. A 3-unit CubeSat for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is testing a new combined solar array and KA-band communications antenna system. Also aboard were two 1.5-unit CubeSats designed to demonstrate optical laser communications technology to transfer data to and from ground stations. There was the U.S. Navy's PropCube-2 Fauna satellite designed to study the ionosphere. There's the Escadia-1 2-unit CubeSat, which is based around a 512-gigabyte solid-state drive. It's designed to demonstrate space-based data storage systems for the next six months using Globestar communications satellites to transfer data. And there's the Navy Research Laboratory's ChefSat 3-unit CubeSat. It's designed to demonstrate off-the-shelf radio systems in space as a risk reduction experiment for future missions. 
The Cygnus 08 mission was the first to fly aboard Orbital's two-stage Antares launch vehicle since October 2016. Once it arrives at the International Space Station, the Cygnus will be captured by the space station's robotic Canadarm2 and docked to the Nadir Earth-facing port on the Unity module. The Cygnus will remain docked to the orbiting outpost until mid-December. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. The launch of the Antares Cygnus cargo ship from Wallops Island came just weeks after Orbital launched a Minotaur C rocket from the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. The Minotaur C delivered 10 satellites into orbit for Planet Labs. FTS armed, vehicle armed, LC, Ops 1, Vic indicates all armed and ignition enabled. Copy, Ops 1, check 167. LC vehicle, vehicle and FTS are armed. Copy that vehicle, check 168, ROC, send range status and alert signal and verify. And Rock LC, countdown 1, your go for step 169, send range status and alert signal and verify. LC, Rock, range is green. And I copy range green, check 169. 172. And Ops 1, your go to initiate countdown to auto sequence start, uh, startup at T minus 1 minute 30 seconds. LC Ops 1, in work. Vehicle fully armed. Copy electrical 1. Go Minotaur C, go planet. Stage 0 TV is squibbed. T minus 10 seconds. Mark. L minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Liftoff of Minotaur C carrying the Skysat and Dove satellites for Planet. Attitude remains nominal as the Castor 120 Stage 0 motor propels the 104-foot-tall Minotaur C vehicle away from Vandenberg Air Force Base. Stage 0 motor pressure is nominal. Attitude remains nominal. Stage 0 TVA is performing nominally to control the flight of the vehicle. Vehicle is past max Q. Attitude remains nominal. Now approximately 50 seconds into the Minotaur C mission for Planet to place six Skysat and four Dove spacecraft into a sun-synchronous orbit. Attitude remains nominal coming up on on stage one TVA pressurization. Stage one TVA has been pressurized. Stage zero has burned out. Stage zero separation. Stage one has ignited and attitude is nominal. Stage one TVA is nominal and controlling the flight of the vehicle. Power buses remain strong at 100 seconds into the mission. Now two minutes into the Minotaur C mission for planet. Attitude remains nominal as the vehicle altitude passes 100 kilometers. And we have lost telemetry in the center. We have negative telemetry in the center. Yes, we still have lock on range data. Uh, yes, so we have can work. And ROC, ROC, this is vehicle on countdown one. Uh, we have negative telemetry in the center here at building 836. Was just hoping you could confirm the track of the vehicle via radar. This is vehicle on countdown one. We have recovered telemetry in the center. We are now 230 seconds into the flight. Attitude remains nominal and we're in stage two burn. Stage two burnout. Vehicle energy state is good. Fairing has separated. I repeat, the fairing is confirmed to have separated and fully deployed. Vehicle is now in a prolonged coast phase as the flight software of the Minotaur C vehicle waits for the vehicle altitude to reach our orbit injection point of approximately 500 kilometers. The payload included six 120 kilograms Skysat high-resolution imaging spacecraft. The spacecraft are being operated by Planet Lab subsidiary Terabella. Each of the Skysats can produce panchromatic images with 86 centimeter resolution and multispectral images with resolutions down to a meter. Also aboard were four Flock 3M Earth-observing three-unit CubeSats. Despite their small size, the Flock 3M CubeSats can still image the Earth's surface at resolutions up to three metres. 
The Minotaur Sea Launch Vehicle is based on Orbital's Pegasus rocket. Pegasus is launched from the underbelly of a converted Lockheed L-1011 TriStar airliner. The Minotaur C uses a solid rocket motor to replace the airliner used on the Pegasus for the initial phase of the mission. Interestingly, the launch system has been renamed Minotaur from its original name of Taurus. That followed a series of spectacular launch failures which darkened the Taurus name. The Taurus XL became the Minotaur C, while the larger Taurus II was renamed Antares. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. And a new study warns that eating during the night is associated with a higher risk of heart disease and diabetes. Findings reported in the Journal of Experimental Physiology says the body's 24-hour circadian rhythms are to blame. Researchers looked at levels of fat called triglycerides, finding that after consuming fat at the beginning of a rest period, blood fat levels spiked far more drastically than when fed at the beginning of an active period. High blood fat levels are associated with heart disease and diabetes. These diseases are also associated with a lifestyle in which humans ignore the signals of the biological clock and eat in the evening and night. The study demonstrates why such a lifestyle out of sync with a human's 24-hour cycle may result in higher blood fat levels and thus a higher risk of heart problems. New research has revealed a body of water in the North Pacific Ocean that's over a thousand years old, according to carbon-14 dating. The water has remained trapped in a shadow zone some two kilometres below the surface. To put it all in context, the last time this abyssal ocean water encountered the atmosphere, the Goths had just invaded Western Europe. The research by scientists from the University of New South Wales suggests at the time this ancient water spent below the surface is a consequence of the shape of the ocean floor and its impact on vertical circulation. Scientists found that around two kilometres below the surface there's a shadow zone with barely any vertical movement and can suspend ocean water in the one area for centuries. The findings, reported in the journal Nature, concludes that the shadow zone's an area of almost stagnant water, sitting between rising currents caused by rough topography and geothermal heat sources below 2.5 kilometres and the shallower wind-driven currents closer to the surface. Researchers also found a similar zone of ancient water in the Indian Ocean at the same depth. Scientists have discovered rare stromatolites living in a remote valley deep within the Tasmanian wilderness. The species was found during a survey of peat-bound karstic wetlands, an unusual type of swamp which only occurs in peaty soils, underlain by limestone and similar carbonate rocks. Stromatolites are laminated structures of microorganisms, which have created layers of minerals using elements dissolved in the water in which they live. Fossilised stromatolites are the oldest evidence of life on Earth, first appearing some 3.7 billion years ago. It's the first time living stromatolites have been found in Tasmania, the ecosystem developed around spring mounds where mineral-rich groundwater is forced to the surface by geological structures in underlying limestone rocks. The find proved doubly exciting for scientists when they found that these spring mounds were partially built from living stromatolites. The discovery of living stromatolites in Tasmania is highly significant because stromatolites are rare globally and have not previously been known from Tasmania except as ancient fossils. DNA analysis suggested that Tasmanian stromatolites are microorganism communities which differ from all other known stromatolite types. 
The discovery provides clues as to why stromatolites thrived for millions of years, but then virtually disappeared from all but a few exceptional places on Earth, such as Shark Bay in Western Australia. Fossilised remains of an Alvarazora dinosaur have been discovered in Uzbekistan. The find sheds new light on the evolution and origin of this ancient species. Previous studies have described Alvazoroidi as a small, long-legged bipedal dinosaur with short forelimbs and feathered bird-like hands. The findings, reported in the journal PLOS One, examine several bones, including vertebrae, a bird-like bone that fuses the wrist to the knuckle, and pieces of what would be fingers or toes. Paleontologists then measured and compared the shapes and sizes of these bones with those from similar species in the literature. The authors found that the characteristics for the Averosaurid bones are so distinctive that they could be identified from just several bone fragments collected at the dig. These included rounded vertebrae located close to the tail, a large and depressed second metacarpal, and a robust second digit with a monstrous claw-like end. Paleontologists say the findings indicate that this group of 90-million-year-old dinosaurs may well have originated in Asia. The next time you go for a meal of lamb or mutton, you might be interested to know that sheep can be trained to recognise human faces from photographs and can even identify the picture of their handler without any prior training. The findings reported in the journal Royal Society Open Source were part of a series of tests given to sheep to monitor their cognitive abilities. The ability to recognise faces is considered one of the most important human social skills. Humans recognise familiar faces easily and can identify unfamiliar faces from repeatedly presented images. As with other social animals such as dogs and monkeys, sheep can recognise other sheep as well as familiar humans. However, little is known about their overall ability to process faces. Researchers trained a sheep to recognise faces from four celebrities from photographic portraits displayed on computer screens. No, they didn't tell us who the celebrities were. The training involved the sheep making decisions as they moved around a specially designed pen. At one end of the pen, the sheep would see two photographs displayed on two computer screens. They'd then be given a reward of food for choosing the photograph of the right celebrity. The sheep quickly learned to associate a reward with the correct celebrity's photograph. Finally, the researchers looked at whether the sheep could also recognise their handler from a photograph without any prior training. Handlers typically spend around two hours a day with sheep, so sheep are very familiar with their appearance. When a portrait photograph of their handler was interspersed randomly in place of the celebrity, the sheep chose the handler's photograph over the unfamiliar face seven times out of ten. During this final task, the researchers observed an interesting sheep behaviour. Upon seeing a photographic image of the handler for the first time, in other words, the sheep had never seen an image of this person before, the sheep did a double take. The sheep checked first the unfamiliar face, then the handler's image, and then the unfamiliar face again, before finally making a decision to choose the familiar face of the handler. And finally for now, a skeptic's view on acupuncture. The scientific method involves observation, hypothesis, experimentation, analysis and conclusion. Science is all about critical thinking. It's a search for the truth. Don't just take someone's word for it. Test the claim. See if it's factual and stands up, or whether it's nothing more than a giant steaming pile of woo. That's what scepticism's all about. It's a search for the truth. And remember, scientific facts don't care if you like them or not. Today, we're looking at the scientific evidence for acupuncture. Acupuncture is a form of traditional Chinese medicine in which thin needles are inserted into the body. And amazingly, it's achieved wide acceptance in the West, despite the fact that there's virtually no medical or other scientific evidence showing that it works. 
Acupuncture's success, therefore, is based solely on its value as a placebo. To find out more, we're joined by regular space-time contributor Aran Sergev, president of Australian Skeptics. Let's make sure that everybody knows what it is. So it's a form of Chinese medicine in which the practitioners stick thin needles into the skin of the patient. How deep and exactly what locations is something that changes, but usually they're very thin and they only evoke a little bit of pain. There's usually hardly any blood, if at all. Again, very thin needles. What are they supposed to do? Okay, so according to most practitioners, the location of the needles is important. The idea is that it provides some kind of energetic activation and often the locations will be along the fabled meridian lines that are supported or believed in a lot of Asian cultures and the meridian lines are those parts of the body where the chi, which is the body's life force, it flows through the meridian line. So basically by inserting those needles you're supposed to be provoking the chi and it is being promoted very much in in China today and in much of Asia but also very much in the West as being able to treat numerous conditions. But in particular, it has a fairly good reputation around the world for being good at pain management. And there's a problem with that because it's simply not true. First of all, there's no evidence that meridians exist. Uh, There's no evidence that chi exists. The needle locations that I've just described, they vary between practitioners very often, but definitely between groups of practitioners. So practitioners in the north of China and the south of China don't practice exactly the same kind of acupuncture. And they all, of course, make the same claims. Therefore, they can't all be right. So at least some of them are wrong, perhaps all of them are wrong. There is no evidence. That's the bottom line. On top of there being no evidence, there is a risk associated with acupuncture. And I think that's really important to remember. The risk is mostly of the needle being inserted too deep and causing some harm or that there could be some infection. And that is actually a little bit of a high risk because it's very rare for practitioners of uh, acupuncture to be wearing surgical gloves while they perform it. So there actually is the risk of infection. Considering the fact that there is no evidence of any benefit, the risk is not acceptable. What about the placebo benefit? Doesn't that count? Uh, no, placebo isn't an effect. You know, that, that's a part of the problem. It's, it's a good opportunity to speak about the placebo effect because people think that placebo effect means the body healing itself or that it's actual an effect. But placebo is all those things like the impression of the patient, the impression of the treating doctor. It's the regression to the mean. It's the fact that many conditions, in fact, fact, are self-healing. And all of these things together form the placebo effect. The placebo effect is not mind over body. It is not self-healing. It is simply all of those things that are not the effect. So yes, a placebo is great because a lot of things will just heal by themselves or improve because we think that they might improve. So that would have happened anyway is what you're saying. Yes. I want to mention another risk of using acupuncture, which is true for any alternative medicine, is that people would forego effective treatment in favor of something that that is baseless and just has no no prospect of actually helping. So what is the scientific evidence? What does it show? There's actually quite a few studies on acupuncture. And in scientific research, we have this thing, there's the gold standard, which is randomized controlled, placebo-controlled trial. And above that, there is the systematic review, which means you look at the entire evidence for a field or for a treatment and try to see what that evidence says. And, And a great example of the way acupuncture is being treated is a paper that came out in 2012. They were all with a strong prior history of advocating for acupuncture. They concluded, showed that acupuncture works. In particular, it works for pain. And this uh, this paper was uh, widely touted as being very definitive and, uh, and supporting the beneficial effects of acupuncture. Isn't pain one of those things that it's really hard to get a, a handle on in terms of the different degrees because everyone has their own level of pain threshold? Absolutely. So pain is one of those things that we know exists. We know it has degrees. We know even how 
how to treat some forms of pain. However, we can't measure. The only real measure for pain is a subjective questionnaire. Uh, the subjectivity is built into the measurement of pain. Childbirth for a woman is the same as man flu. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, no, actually, I, I don't think that is fair. I think man, <laughs> man flu is much worse. <laughs> when looking at that study, the, a few things arose. Of course, the choice of pain as a measure is, of course, a big problem, but that is something you can't help that because a lot of the focus in acupuncture in general has been around pain. But in a systematic review of this kind, what they generally tend to do is choose good quality studies, studies where they can be sure that the study itself is sound, and then it can easily be aggregated into other studies. Unfortunately, these researchers included some really poor studies, studies where the methodology was poor, studies that were not properly blinded, a lot of studies that were not properly blinded, studies where the methodologies were conflicting, which means when you try to look at studies together, you want to make sure that they don't conflict in their methodology so you can actually compare them to each other mm. and aggregate their results. They didn't do that very well. That's going to be a warning sign for anyone looking at the results and study because that's going to be telling you they couldn't find anything better. And also that they were not particularly rigid and, mm. and regimented in their approach. They did not actually necessarily try to find the truth, but actually tried to support acupuncture. At least there's a possibility that that might be the case, and it's indeed a red flag. They already knew what they wanted to say. And it's possible. Cherry picking the evidence to try and justify it. Uh, you know, we, we can't say what was going through their minds, but but it definitely, definitely raises the suspicion that that was the case. In any case, what is definitely true is that it leads to a lower quality review. Then what happened was that they measured pain and they had essentially three groups. They had the treatment group, they had the no treatment group, and they had one group where they did something called sham acupuncture. Sham acupuncture means that the patient thinks that they're getting acupuncture. However, they're not the needle does not actually prick the skin. There's special needle contraptions that look like it's a needle and like it's going into the skin, but it's not actually going to the skin. Or alternatively, they go into the skin, but in the wrong locations, away from the meridians. So the idea is that it's not supposed to work. However, what they found was that there was a benefit to the treatment group over the not treatment group, but that difference was not what's called clinically significant. It was statistically significant, but it was not clinically significant. It it is the kind of thing that if you look at it in a clinical situation, you would say, we don't really know whether there was any improvement or not. Importantly, what they found was that the sham acupuncture was somewhere in between the two groups. The way it was interpreted by supporters of acupuncture is that acupuncture is so good that even sham acupuncture works. However, the correct interpretation by anybody objective is that acupuncture is placebo. It's like it's, it's an elaborate placebo. Basically, one of the things we see in any elaborate treatment is that the very fact that there is treatment, the very fact that you know that you're being treated will make you assess things as being better. It's the sugar pill. It's the sugar pill. You get something. No treatment means you know you're not getting anything. The fact that the sham acupuncture and real acupuncture were both a little bit better than they're not treatment groups, tells us that both are placebo. The reality is that at best, acupuncture has only a very minor effect on pain. There is no evidence that it has any effect on anything else. And the most likely explanation for everything that we're seeing is that it's simply a placebo and has no effect at all. That's Aran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, from spacetimewithstuartgary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. 
Space Times also broadcasts coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio, and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 